0: Welcome to the Rocksback Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie.
1: Hello, Barney.
0: In this episode, we'll be talking about Phil Spector, police manager Miles Copeland, and everything that's new on the Rocksback Pages site. First, though, it's our great pleasure to welcome Nick Coleman as our special guest. Hi, Nick. Hello, Barney. <laughs> Hello, Nick. <laughs> Great to see you, great to have you on the show. Lovely to see you. Nick is unquestionably one of the UK's very best music writers. He started Enemy in the 80s. He was Time Out's music editor. He was a features editor at the Indie and Independent on Sunday and he's written three really great books, the most recent of which is Voices: How a Great Singer Can Change Your Life from 2017. Nick, let's start by asking you, where did music begin for the young Nick Coleman?
2: It began probably in utero, actually, if I'm (laughs) honest.
0: (laughs) What, the Nirvana album?
2: By which I do not mean. I do not mean the Nirvana album, which hadn't been released in 1960. But no, I was brought up, as they say, in a terribly musical household. My dad was a very musical man. It was a very churchy household as well. And I went to church every Sunday from quite a young age. And I loved the music there. I loved the music that I was required to listen to and perform at home. And I scampered through life very happily until about the age of 11, 12, 13, when hormones began to bite. <laughs> and I suddenly discovered that <laughs> something else was available other than J.S. Oh, Bach dear. Oh, and dear. Monteverdi and
3: <laughs>
2: him singing. And I, I went for it like a, a rat up a drainpipe. I, said. I fell, I fell. That doesn't mean I still don't love J.S. Bach and Monteverdi and all of that, but
0: it's not where my soul is. Fantastic. And, I mean, when did you first start to think you might want to write about music? Oh, that is, I, I knew you'd ask me
2: that, and I can't actually answer it because <laughs> I sort of slid sideways into it, having. Got a decent arts degree, having farted around in West London in a record shop for three years. Working very, very happily, I have to say, flogging records to hipsters and occasionally rubbing shoulders with The Clash and Dr Alimentado and that sort of that sort of individual, which is what I'd gone there for. So Nick Hornby
0: book. did base, your friend Nick Hornby did base High Fidelity on you.
2: No. No. <laughs> he used me for some of the research but it certainly is not based on me. I was much nicer than any of those people. Which record shop?
4: Which record shop? Honest
2: John's it? in Portobello Road. Oh yes. Road. Oh nice.
4: Yeah. I was Great. in there
2: between 83 and 86 and very happy doing that but also increasingly uneasy that I should be I feared that I might spend the rest of my life working in a record shop and felt that I ought to try a little bit harder than that. So I sent off stuff to the editor at the NME, and do you remember City Limits? City Limits. Yes. And was sort of, not grudgingly, but suspicious with caution embraced by the editor of the NME, who gave me a few things to do. And I sort of slid sideways into it, primarily because I wanted to write about what I felt in touch with at the time, which was You won't know about this Jasper because you probably weren't even born, but it was the great jazz revival of the early and mid-1980s. You'll remember this, Mark. (laughs) Yes? Absolutely. I wanted to be the enemy's voice of the jazz revival. And in fact, the first thing I ever did was a terrible interview with Horace Silver, the great pianist. I love Horace Silver. I learned a very, very early lesson about etiquette and respect I sat down and I switched my tape recorder on, opened my notebook and said, right, Horace. And he said, Mr. Silver.
4: (laughs) Fantastic. So
2: the world froze for about 45 seconds. I bet. Uh, I I bet. I hoped that I hadn't wet myself. Um, and so have you always
0: started every interview since? Say Mr. Silver, Mr. Or Mrs. No, <laughs> no, but like Mr. George, as in Boy George, for example.
2: Well, or- no, 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 I have. I, I've, I've learned to. I learned <laughs> to judge the the vibe, but I, I quickly discovered that gentlemen like Mr. Silver expected respect, and they got it always from me thereafter. And by God, they deserved
0: it. Mm. I remember you sliding into Enemy. I was sort of Mm. on my way out of Enemy and I remember seeing your byline and thinking, well, you know, how nice to see such elegance and erudition in Mm. these pages. And also I just felt, you know, as more Nick Coleman pieces appeared, I felt a great kinship with your personal tastes, which Mm. continues to this day. And I suspect we like a lot of the things that you Mm. like. And that's kind of reflected in the, pieces we picked to put on the homepage, and one is about Anita Baker right. one is about Donald Fagan slash Steely Dan and one is about Keith Richards and we felt those sort of you know, co- conveyed something of the breadth of your of your interests what did I mean as a matter of interest you know who influenced you as a writer and what did oh, you feel you yeah
2: that's an, another question I sort of half anticipated and couldn't really <laughs> answer who influenced me as a writer well the reason i slid into writing for the enemy was because i was a an enemy devotee from 1975ish onwards i'd started out reading the music press very hesitantly as a 13 year old in 1973 by 1975 i was leaving the prog fold which had <laughs> been my been my place really as a rural provincial boy, hipster in, in uh, no, not a hipster, a freak uh, until then. And, and then I discovered the enemy in 1975, just at the same time as I discovered things like reggae and pub rock and the flaming groovies, and discovered that Rick Wakeman wasn't the beginning and end of everything. And I quickly that's discovered
0: that's a very important lesson. To learn. Yes, it's a
2: really important lesson in life. Uh, Actually, it was the Yes Rhythm section that I really liked, but we won't go there now. No, (laughs) uh, and I I discovered The Enemy and and felt that its tone appealed to me more than the Melody Maker that I'd read hitherto. And in particular, I liked, as I recall, Ian MacDonald, Nick Kent, Charlie Murray, and I think possibly slightly later than that, I became very attached to the writing of Angus MacKinnon, who subsequently became a very good friend. And I went to the NME 10 years later in 1985, thinking that it would be the same place and that if one wrote for it, one would have the same good time that Ian MacDonald and Nick Kent and Charlie Murray were having in 1975, (laughs) with the same sort of ethos applying and the same opportunities being made available. And funnily enough, I discovered this wasn't the case and that it was an entirely (laughs) different Entirely different zoo to the, to the, the place I'd expected it to be. I never grew out of being a, a minor stringer, and always felt slightly uncomfortable in the office for reasons which I won't bore you with. And after a couple of years of freelancing there and anywhere else that would take me, I. Applied for a job at Time Out and got it, to my amazement.
0: Was that the job of music editor? You no, just it was right the job out. of
2: deputy music editor. Deputy
0: music editor. Who was the music editor at that point? It's Simon Garfield. Right, of course. Uh, yeah. who, who we, we do on. have some pieces by on Rock's Back Pages. Would yeah, like to get very, more.
2: very good writer. Very yeah, good writer. Terrific. And a year later, he he got himself booted upstairs and I... Slid into his chair and stayed music Yeah, I'm a bit slippery, aren't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and sat there for about six years whilst.
3: No more sliding. We, no
2: more sliding. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. no. I sat tight um, and had a very good time, to, certainly to begin with, but always felt slightly gauche and provincial and not quite on it. And after about six years of that, I thought, ah, oh, I'm not sure that I'm really. Cut out to be a music journalist, and I left. Yes, you did. I did.
0: So, <laughs> like, I left. <laughs>
4: yes, but well, that's the end of the
0: podcast. <laughs> Thank oh, you for joining us this week. And That was uh, yeah. well, well. Well, you didn't. You, no, it's not the end of the podcast. You no. you then got a very grown up job of the Independent and Indie on yeah. Sunday, and that that's was right. beyond that. Sort of was broader than music, obviously.
2: Yeah, and that's what I wanted. I, I don't know how many chaps around this podcast table have ever experienced the despair of of of, of being a music writer and wishing you were just a music fan. <laughs> you could just hear music <laughs> clean for what it is.
4: Only one other than yourself. I suppose that must be Barney. <laughs> yeah.
3: well, by
2: 1993, I was really fed up with being a music journalist mm. and doing what is required of a music journalist. Furthermore what was happening in music was starting to be a story that I was really, really not interested in, Mm -hmm. which was the rise of Britpop and and the stranglehold stranglehold that dance music had on everything else. I was having rows with the editor and and about what should go on the cover and I knew that I wasn't really at the races anymore. Mm. So I thought, I'll stop being a music journalist, I'll go and be an arts journalist. And I went freelance for a while and eventually copped uh, a job at the Independent, as you rightly say, on the Arts Desk and became a general arts journalist with a particular interest in music. <laughs> and funnily enough, started that enjoying what you said on your
0: business card. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I imagine this sort of thing happens to a lot of people. I mean, what does the music journalist do when he no longer feels, he or she no longer feels that they're cracking it anymore?
4: I think this is a very important broad point here is that, First of all, if you tie yourself just to a single thing as a journalist, if that mm. thing goes or is eroded in any way, you, you're buggered. We, we, Barney and I, know a lot of writers who are really yeah. struggling because they were yeah. music journalists. Second thing is, is that really pop music should be written about people of the same generation as the people yeah. listening to it, or loosely, close to that. And when you start getting men in their 40s trying to write about music for people in their 20s, yeah it's i i just think it's it's tricky i mean it's not to say it's impossible some people do it very well
2: yeah
4: but but it's a uh...
2: I completely agree with that. And I I felt that discomfort slightly prematurely at the age of 33. Imagine being 33 and a third and saying, oh, I'm too old for pop music.
0: I mean, it's absurd. <laughs> what happened when you we were 45?
2: Oh, well, yeah. that's a, well, that's when I started being ill, but that's another story. Okay, already. well,
0: we'll get to that. I want to just tie that, what you just said, back to... The the issue of kind of taste and what you liked. Mm. And, you know, certainly when you were writing about things like Anita Baker and Donald Fagan and this, I mean, I think someone like Ian Penman was was quite on that wavelength taste wise. And even Keith Richards. I mean, the fact is that in the 80s, to write about people like Steely Dan and Keith Richards was, there were only people like Richard Cook. Doing that, Danny Baker still liked stuff like that mm. but he wasn't writing for enemy. I mean, everyone was writing about young guns and yeah. and sort of you know pretty crappy bands, and and mm. you were one of the few who was who was and you've always written about these artists who are, apart from anything else, they're just very very musical artists. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I don't know if this do you identify a particular sort of thread of music that you respond to and enjoy writing about, as in the Voices book.
2: That's a good question, and I think it's probably true to say that I have what would boil down to basic R&B good taste. In other words, um, I like everything that, is, that touches on R&B or R&B touched upon or generate, engendered. One of the interesting things about my upbringing is that I was always brought up in this slightly staid, very musical household, was to look at, for the origins of stuff. Where does it come from? What gave rise to this? Why is Bach, What's the connection between Bach and Monteverdi or the other way around? And as a result, when I became, uh, write, when I started writing about pop music and rock music and jazz and things like that, my in, natural inclination was to look at where whatever it was had come from, rather than what was going to happen next. So, and I've always been much, much more comfortable. Looking at the music of someone like Anita Baker in terms of her provenance, than uh, looking at the latest pop band and speculating on what's going to happen next. I was always crap at that. And one of my, (laughs) I had a a colleague at Time Out who who was absolutely insistent that I was completely useless on pop, and she was right. Actually, (laughs) I bridled, I fumed, but she was right. I, I had no real. I liked pop music if it was really musical. And it had a good tune and it was really saying something, man. Mm. But if it was just the latest thing that was part of a a forward thrusting trend, then if it didn't have those qualities, then I didn't think it was any good, Mm. which is the wrong attitude. (laughs) You've got to be interested. Yes. If if you're going to write about pop music as a journalist, you've got to be interested in what Mm. people like. And I spent far too much of my time as a music writer not being interested in what people like, but only being interested in what I like. And that that led in the end to a kind of self-absorbed reflectiveness on why it is that I like the things that I like and I don't like the things that I don't like. And that became the kind of the uber subject of what, what I do and, and why I ended up writing the kinds of books that I have written.
0: Well, that's the point, really. I mean, you may have seen that as some kind of hindrance, but I would say that it generated the wonderful work that you've done and and your work, your writing is always very personal. It's a personal response. I love Mm. the beginning of the Anita Baker piece, which is from 1986. And you just talk about your very personal response. There's one line in the yeah. "Same Old Love" on Rapture, and it's just that it, you just wouldn't get writing like that anymore. <laughs> and there's there's a seamless line really between that and the Voices book, which is such a it it's such a sort of, sort of unusual approach to the experience of listening to the human voice as a, as a musical instrument. Tell mm. us just a little bit about, I mean that book well it's the most recent book when did you first start to think about writing about your favorite singers
2: it had been a fantasy that i'd had for years and i don't think it was entirely conscious but it was it was always something that was brewing cooking fermenting in my head which is this weird process of why is it that a line in an anita baker song has this peculiar Capacity to snare my imagination and my emotions in the way that it does, and I've always been entranced by this. You know, even Mick Jagger, who is technically not the greatest singer in the world and doesn't have a very beautiful voice, I love his singing because of the detail of his singing. The connections that we make with singing are not simply about whether they can hold a good tune or not. The model of this, I think, and, and forgive me for for changing gear like this, I was thinking about this the other day because I for reasons I won't bore you with, I was moved to go and re-listen to, of all people, Linda Ronstadt. Mm -hmm. Now, I never had any interest in Linda Ronstadt at the time, the 70s, at all. And uh, I was reading about Linda Ronstadt in a book, and it reminded me that I had felt absolutely nothing whenever I heard Linda Ronstadt. And the book was actually recommending the, the album Heart Like a Wheel, which was something like her fifth or sixth album. It was the one produced by, I think, Andrew Gold. And the book was saying, after a a row of rather dull but professional and efficient albums, she's at last put one out with some content in it. And I went back to the Linda Ronstadt, so I checked them out, and it was absolutely spot on. The reason I hadn't really connected with Linda Ronstadt at the time was that I found her singing completely uninhabited. Suddenly, on Heart Like a Wheel, she's inhabiting the songs that she's singing. Uh, her voice is inhabited. She's not simply singing a row of dots to get the tune right and to make an impressive sound. She's investing the song with something that comes from herself. And that's something that I look for, both in detail and in macro. Every singer in the book that I write about who I approve of or who I say I like is because they have some kind of content and psychological authenticity to to the singing that they do. Now, there's an awful lot of scornful racketing goes on in the sort of music journo discourse about the word authenticity. Mm -hmm. I think there's only one kind of authenticity that counts in music, and that's psychological authenticity doesn't matter whether you're singing incorrectly in the style. Mm-hmm. What is important is, is, is this song coming out with content that is okay. real, that belongs to you, derives from your experience yeah. and is, expresses something of what you're feeling.
4: It's the very things which make someone like George Jones great as a singer. Absolutely. But, because, you know, you are hearing him. Uh, oh. his humanity everything about him is is in there
1: yeah oh absolutely i think it's also interesting i mean the voice has perhaps a unique capacity to evoke certain emotions perhaps it's you know to the human ear it has the most subtly perceptible variations that can yeah. you know really just make the hair stand up on the back of your neck in that in that way that you described for example with with Anita Baker
4: Anita Baker's, i think an interesting case in point is that the more sophisticated she became as a singer from, let's say, her third album onwards, I think the less interesting she became oh, as a great. singer, that it became an exercise in sort of technique and style, mm. whilst singing the somewhat simpler, somewhat more old-fashioned soul music of her first two records. Mm. You actually heard her far yeah. more clearly.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and the more jazz-inflected, so if you can't separate her from jazz singing, she is a jazz singer, among yeah. other things. I really love. I mean, I loved Rapture. I think we all fell in love with, with the Rapture album because it was just different. I really like the one after that as well. I have to say, Giving You the Best That I Got, that, that song is just perfection. But but then, short, song, th- yeah.
4: then after that, she, she certainly lost me very quickly, yeah. having, been a, having been a huge fan. I mean, certainly myself, I don't know about you two, but the two elder gentlemen here, <laughs> but I, I saw it at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1986, which is her very first London show. And she just tore the roof off the place. Yeah. It was absolutely magnificent, mm. you
1: know. Just to pick up on the, the whole voice thing, in the interview, which I think is great, the one that we're featuring of yours with Anita, she says, oh, I love tenor saxophones. I love thick sounds, fat sounds, mm. sounds that have abandon. And I think that sort of speaks to what we're saying as well, that there is a kind of richness to, to certain sounds of which the voice can be one if it has that fatness. Which, which can be just mm. tremendous. But
2: thin voices can be beautiful as well. Yeah, and, absolutely.
0: And no, of course, of course. Well, but but yeah. Billie Holiday, for example.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's
2: wisp thin. Yeah. No, I, I, what, what, I just want to add one thing about Anita, which is that you're absolutely right about the soulfulness. You're absolutely right uh, about the jazziness. But the most important thing, the, where, where she sings most brilliantly and most compellingly is when she's got a real syncopated flexing beat Yes. And that's why her first album is better than Rapture and Rapture's Better Than The Third One, because there's more beatiness going on. I was looking I as a little bit of research for this this thing <laughs> we are doing now, I actually got out my old copy of Rapture and looked yeah. at the credits. And lo, same old love, which is far and away, I think, the best song on Rapture. It's buried it towards the end of side two. There's that in very important name. Freddie, Reddy, Freddie Washington. Yes. Yes. I knew Mark would nod. <laughs> <he was. laughs>
3: if,
2: if, you want, if you want your singer to ping, if you want your singer to bounce and swing yeah. and you're making a, a soft funk record, and Patrice Russian will testify to this because she used him a lot, you get Freddie Washington in with his thumbs
4: to play bass. <laughs> Yeah. The same like James Gadson as a drummer, you know, Absolutely. on all those, the great poet too and things like that, yeah. you know, yeah. who was also, who were all in, all in Bill Withers' band, mm. you know, came out of that. I mean, which was the, what's hundred and
0: third Street. Third
4: Street yeah. band, yeah. Mm. Charles Wright. Yeah, great
2: players. They really help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was never better served than when she had a bass player with a solid thumbing um, <laughs> yeah. funk going on. Yeah, she yeah. sang so much better.
0: I like the term soft funk. actually my favorite track on Rapture is, is being so long, I think. Oh yeah. I just can't resist that. Because it is so funky and she sort of sings like a saxophone in so many ways. Well, just to abruptly change Rich, I just wanted to sort of you know, just looking again at the contents of this wonderful book, Voices, what I love is that in one in one chapter you talk about Janice Joplin, Billy Holiday. Ian Curtis, and then you say with Chris Bell and Amy Winehouse, like their sort mm. of supporting act, which I love. <laughs> but to get all those different people into that one chapter, I think is fantastic because I oh, think exactly. Ian Curtis, is in his way, is a brilliant singer,
5: right. such
0: a distinctive sound. Yeah. And then the last chapter, it's Van Morrison, Burning Spear, Alex Harvey, and John Lydon with Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's more. Or less. <laughs> uh, I'm
2: very touched that you appreciate it in this way, Barney. But I do want to say, on mm. the back of that, that that is how we listen to music. Mm. We don't listen to. We don't no. just listen to Bob Dylan for a day and then switch channels and listen no. to Janis Joplin. We we no. get music in in this kind of multivalent way. And and I wanted. Yeah, to we write don't about... listen to it
0: hierarchically.
2: No, no, no. no. We listen to what we want to listen to in the moment. And nowadays, we have the choice. Yeah,
0: exactly. Mm, Very true. I mean, mean, it is so personal, isn't it? I mean, you know, a philosopher will tell you that when I listen to a burning spear record, Marcus Garvey, for example, I can never know that what I'm hearing is what you're hearing. No, no, absolutely not. But we, as approximately as we can, we can share the experience of listening to Winston mm. Rodney's same. but you might be hearing something completely different from me
2: i might well be but the point the point there is a point of connection there are two vectors that meet which is whatever i or you write about winston rodney and that is the place in which we can get mm. a sense that there is something possibly shared going on here and that was mm. the excitement of reading the music press back in the 70s in my teens i of course i hadn't got a fucking clue about what the difference between the Stooges and Nazareth was when I was 13. (laughs) But if I read Charles Shaw, Murray and NME on the subject of the Stooges, he'd never have written about Nazareth, then I would begin to get a sense of the shared sensibility and the sense of outreach and connection that makes music important as a social thing, whether we're standing with the person or not.
4: And, and now I have to go and find the Nazareth interview that Charles Schaum <laughs> <John> already undone. <laughs> I'd be surprised. Out.
0: I think Charlie uh, might well have had to write about Nazareth. Because did. at that point, you know, I mean, because the other day, I had to look at a Beck, Bogart and a Peach interview that Charlie had done. Right. I mean, obviously, he's a big Chef Beck fan. But people like Charlie and Nick Kent and even, even Ian McDonald had to write about a lot of tosh before... Mm-hmm. Before the punk era,
4: yeah. well, you know, don't assume that they thought it was Tosh before the yeah.
0: punk era. No, well, that's you true, know. and it isn't all Tosh. You know, Jeff Beck certainly wasn't Tosh. I mean, you know, Nazareth N- had their moment as well. <laughs> Nazareth had their <laughs> moment.
4: Well, yeah, well, well, Nick, Nick Logan, who's shall we say one of the founding fathers of the enemy as it became, was passionate about Jeff Rotale for a remarkable number of years, which is, is possibly one reason why he doesn't want his writing on rocks back. Page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Nick, we have to talk about pretty briefly about The Train in the Night That's and this, this incredibly yeah. traumatic experience you had, particularly as someone passionate about music and a writer about music. Do you want to just tell us what happened?
2: What happened is that I lost my hearing. I had, I had a, some kind of strange stroke type event mm. inside my bunce and I woke up with literally not a, not a decibel of hearing in one ear and utterly confused hearing in the other. This was in 2007. And I thought I was for the high jump. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't move. I thought this was the end of days for me. And in due course, I, when I, when I realised that I wasn't going to die and I wasn't going to kill myself, uh, I began to realise that I had quite possibly lost access to music altogether. And the neurology of hearing is, is far more complex than we think. Mm. I mean, we think of our ears as holes that let sound in and our brains just go, wait, that's sound. That's not what happens at all. It's far, more, far, far, far more complicated than that. And without wishing to get too complex and scientific about it, what I'll say is simply that I lost the hearing in one ear, the other ear was fucked, and it took three years for the fucked ear to begin to be able to make sense of sound. Uh, because what you hear with is not your ear, but your brain. If you lose the hearing in one ear completely, your brain, which is used to red- taking signals from two portals, gets very confused indeed. And I, m- my hearing in the good ear, which was technically around 90% at that stage, simply could not make sense of sound that was organised like music. Um, and I, I have one very memorable occasion where I sat down on one of those rare occasions when I listened to Led Zeppelin, and the drums were playing. Robert Plant was, I think, screeching in a different time signature. And Jimmy Page's guitar sounded like an underground train going through a tunnel. It was absolutely extraordinary. And what was most peculiar about it was that it was totally disorganised as a sound. It no longer cohered as music. It was, I could recognise that it was trying to be music, but it wasn't music. And it took three years for my brain to reconfigure itself. And it's a testament to the plasticity of the human brain, yeah. to the state where I could listen to music again through one ear in mono with massive roaring tinnitus in the other ear, which is still there. I was
4: extremely distressed, as I think anyone who is passionate mm. about music would be. Well, I think you've
0: shown incredible courage to, to to come through this. I love the book the "Train in the Night." Yeah. I, I
4: thought Thank it was you. absolutely fantastic, really fantastic piece of writing about something which is very hard to describe in, in many ways uh, and, and and a terrible experience to have to go through. Where are you at now with your hearing?
2: My hearing is pretty good. One other feature of the the plastic brain is that mm-hmm. if you allow it to, and that is a very important point to make for anyone who's ever troubled in this way. You have to allow your brain to adapt. You can't make it. It will adapt so that when you put a record on, listen mm-hmm. to music, somehow the brain will occlude the tinnitus. Mm-hmm. So I can't hear in stereo. I can't listen to music at any volume at all. Mm-hmm. But I can listen to music perfectly, with perfect clarity. I've even got the bass response back, which, which took five or six years to come to return. Mm-hmm but no. I can listen to music in perfect clarity in one ear with the tinnitus going on in the other ear, but somehow right. the brain occludes it. Tunes it
4: out in a way. Tunes yeah. it
2: out is a, is a much better way of putting it.
4: One that's interesting, obviously, we've been Facebook friends for a number of years now, mm. and every now and again, you'd make a post where, like you've made another breakthrough. You'd listen okay. to a, a particular record in a certain volume or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, you know, more progress had been made, which is really interesting to observe. It it's, it's good stuff.
2: The one that was most touching to me, most important to me, was the one that happened only about a year and a half ago, when I, I've got a very posh stereo in my front room. Quite right. Uh, and, and I couldn't listen to it at all because the signal was too big. It distressed me emotionally to sit in front of a, a machine that was playing beautiful music very sweetly. And it simply reminded me of how terrible my hearing was. And then for, for some reason, I put on a record. I can't remember what it was. I put on a record about a year and a half ago. And because the machine was good, that was re- playing back the, the music, because it was good, I heard it good, if you'll forgive the bad English. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this, was a, this was a massive breakthrough for me because prior yeah. to that, everything had, had to be massively compressed and narrow right. and attenuated. I couldn't listen to, I still haven't been to a gig with drums, but I can, obviously I haven't been to a gig for a long time anyway because nobody Mm -hmm. has. The progress continues to be made and I'm totally accepting of the fact that everything has to be in mono and I have to tune out the tinnitus
4: but well if it's good enough for Brian Wilson Mono's probably good enough for you
0: this is the perfect moment to, to slide I think we're, <laughs> sliding is the new segue Just <laughs> slide into a discussion of the man who built the wall of sound mm-hmm. and and was obsessed with getting back to Mono the notorious infamous but in his way utterly brilliant Phil Spector who died what a week ago We actually have a little clip of Phil talking, do we not, Mark?
4: We do. It's Roy Carr interviewing a very drunk Phil Spector. It's only about four minutes long, the whole thing, but we'll play this. Shall we play the short clip now? What you haven't asked me about, and what I want you to think about, before you set the tape recorder, is how can somebody who gave his whole life to music, who made such fucking great records, and you know I did. You've admitted I did. I'll tell you again as
3: well. How could they have
5: hated me?
3: And how can they
5: still hate me?
2: But your records are always full of love.
5: Exactly. Nobody made
2: such good
4: that's what I don't know. That's, that's what I told you. They don't understand me. How could they hate me? During the summer in Norway? Man, the fucker, I hear I make River Deep Banner. How could... Whatever you want to call it. I played you tape last night, you know, going to be number one. How could they hate somebody whose records are filled with so much love, and not only love, so much honesty? And so much pure fucking talent! <laughs> Whoa. I mean, I, 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 Jesus I, Christ! It's like Gollum. Well, I mean, well, absolutely. I mean, and and the lashings of paranoia in there. This idea that yeah. everyone hates him. I think that first of all, we should say at this point, is we should remember Lana Clarkson. Because, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, it's it's very very tricky with any any artist whose work you hugely admires to confront their monstrosities. But you do have to. Mm. And this poor woman who left her place of work to go for a drink with this man and ended up shot dead yeah. by a madman, you know. Yeah, and, you know, she had family, she had loved ones, she had, and she had a life to look forward to, and, you know, snuffed out by this man.
0: Listening to that, you know, just frankly unpleasant clip mm-hmm. with such sort of just nastiness, it took about a thin voice. It took me back to the cover of NME in which Roy Carr's interview was published, in March seventy six, I'll never forget it because I was already mm-hmm. fairly obsessed by Spectre. But it is this picture of him, prophetically and horribly holding a gun, pointing a gun at the. Do you remember that, Nick? You remember I that? I remember cover? it vividly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he
2: had strange bush of hair on his head. This
0: this insane wig that he had, mm-hmm. and then the the Durriga bodyguard man, mountain sitting behind him in the car, mm-hmm. and the piece was all about the, the madness of this kind of sort of Charles Foster Kane of pop, wasn't it? What was your first sort of Spectre memory, Nick, or first record well, you Oh, heard?
2: God, it'll have been the Ronettes, I would imagine. Mm.
0: And I, I
2: have a slightly... I've always had a slightly vexed relationship with Spectre because I think the records are great. Who could not think that the records are great? But I've never particularly enjoyed them in a funny kind of way. Okay. Um, I talk about it in The Voices book. That there's something... I try to create a metaphor about him capturing musicians or capturing girls' voices and imprisoning them in great silos of instrumentation. I may be stretching the metaphor a bit too far in the book, but it does—it is a truthful account of how I felt. I used to listen to the Ronettes or the Righteous Brothers and think, "Wow, that's an amazing record," but I don't like it as much as I like dot dot dot. And I always felt that it was to do okay. with the sound.
0: What about you, Mark?
4: I mean, I, I vividly remember as a child, the two big hits in my, my youth were River Deep Mountain High and You've Lost That like Love and Feeling. River Deep Mountain High I absolutely adored because it was part of my induction into the sound of the black voice, you know, along with things like The Four Tops, mm. stuff I'd hear on the radio, going, driving up to my parents' cottage in Suffolk on a Saturday morning listening to... a two-way family favourites. And these, hearing Levi Stubbs or Tina Turner was, was an extraordinary experience for me. The older stuff is just the older stuff, as far as I'm concerned. It's a sound, it's a very specific sound. One of my beefs with Bruce Springsteen is that his desperate desperation to revive the wall of sound, particularly on Born to Run. And then I had absolutely no interest in his productions with Latter-day Beatles, solo or otherwise, or the album he did with the Ramones. Even the album he did... Did, did, did the one he did with Leonard Cohen ever actually come yeah, out? Did, didn't ladies, that's yeah, that's the session
0: when he pulled the gun on Leonard. Guns were a feature of Spectre's life. Yeah. Really write the word. The way in in a way,
4: I find I him such a repellent yeah. character that, that it's, it kind of got in the way of listening to the music a lot.
2: I agree, and, and I think one of the things that will have was lost when we discovered that he was a, a vile little piece of work, was the, his contribution to the mythology of pop music in general. Mm-hmm. You're old enough to remember Nick Cohn, right?
4: Um, what Yes, absolutely.
2: Tony Parsons' Deathless First novel, which I think was a kind of riff on the Svengali genius
4: theme. I never read
2: that All I was going to say was that that was an absolutely essential part of the mythology of what made pop music mm-hmm. interesting to me, this idea that there was a, a kind of separate economic system, although, I, of course, I didn't think about it in those terms when I was 12, 13, 14, in which Svengali's and mysterious geniuses controlled other people.
0: Yeah. I mean, you put your finger because there's a lot of, so there is a lot of conversation, at the moment, including Julie Birchall weighed in herself. She's hardly covered herself in Glory recently, but she pitched in with a Telegraph piece yesterday but a number of particular female writers have written about the this, this sort of predatory Spengali figure mm. that Spectre. I can't say he invented it, of course no. not. It, it pre, pre, uh, it, I,
4: I mean, I feel particularly sorry, particularly for someone like Tina Turner, who had that in her marriage to Ike, and then would go into the studio with Phil Spector, who, who behaved very much in the same way. And the fact that Phil basically kept, well, Ronnie Spector Almost imprisoned at all.
0: Well, Ronnie would have been a prisoner when, probably when River Deep was being recorded. Yeah, absolutely. locked up in the castle. Yeah. And, and it's true, you know, you, you
4: hear those stories, and, you know, yes, you know, you can sometimes separate the artist from the art. I mean, I, st- I would still listen to, to Michael Jackson's best music for the rest of my life. You know, Caravaggio, a murderer, but possibly one of the greatest painters in the history of art. Mm. I can't quite do that with Phil. There's something about in a way, his music almost sounds as oppressive as he was in a curious kind
0: of way. I mean, the, the just sonically, the wall of sound. Well, it was all about him, wasn't it? That's the yeah. point, really. I mean, it's a bit like Jose Mourinho's football team.
3: <laughs> it,
0: it's, it was all because Phil, A, couldn't sing, B, looked like the dweeb that never gets picked for the football team, etc., etc., which is the source of all his bitterness. I mean, he had real problems, his dad killed himself, you know, and can't write sure. the out of the story. Oh. But, yeah. you know, in a way he was able to, to sort of, you know, he kind of wanted to be the Cecil B. DeMille of pop production and he reinvented the idea of the producer as auteur.
2: What we I haven't mentioned is that I have another career these days. I'm a qualified psychotherapist. And there's a, a phrase that, a word that immediately sprang to my mind when I was reading about Spectre and his demise in the, over the last few days, which is that something that links him closely to the departed, dear departed Donald Trump, which mm. yes. he, he exhibits many of the symptoms of what we call uh, narcissistic personality disorder indeed and yeah. and he and one of those is grandiloquence another of those is self-pity extreme self-pity mm. and a total inability to perceive the world in any terms
4: other than his own yes that's that's, that's great that very really much very much takes us back to
0: the clip we just listened to yeah, exactly, exactly. But you, so, with, yeah. with added alcohol in <laughs> Bill's case i mean that sort of raging alcoholic yeah. resentment is is so toxic i mean Trump, I believe, is a teetotaler. Just imagine what it would be like if he drank.
4: I'd Um. I'd very much like Trump to die in jail as Phil did. That would, I think, be...
0: And just to note, we are talking the day after the inauguration of Joe Biden as the president. So as Jonathan Friedman said, we're all able to exhale after four years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What I
1: was going to say was that we have a pretty difficult time I think generally with the notion of genius yeah and Phil Spector kind of illustrates that in that you know when he died the other day there was a lot of kind of you know flawed genius dies age 81 it's like well flawed you know he killed someone the BBC headline that really put a lot of people's noses out it's very peculiar and I think it you know it does speak volumes to what we consider genius to be I mean genius is pretty much always male yeah it often has that notion of kind of insanity or madness baked into it. Yeah. And it it leaves everything else behind it in that narcissistic way that you were talking about, yeah. Nick. And I think that it's something that, that it's difficult to reckon with as a concept, ultimately.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just the only thing I would interject is that I think it's a false sort of trade-off between the greatness of you've lost that love and feeling and the death of Lana Clarkson. I don't think... Well, I mean, for me, I, having grown up with those records and worshipped them, I, I make no bones about that. I can't really say, well, it's one or the other. Either either, either, I never listen to Phil Spectre again or I'm somehow colluding with, with what you're talking about, Jasper.
4: No, that, that, That's absolutely right, Barney. I mean, and in a way that's a conversation we will continue to have yeah. with ourselves, for, you know, forever effectively as long as we listen to his music that conversation will be going on in our head to some extent
1: I think the thing I struggle with with that is I you know I think it's a it is certainly a, a way that a lot of people feel and it's some, you know one doesn't really want to deprive oneself of, of great works of art because one doesn't want to be deprived of them but what I struggle with for myself is like well is that just deciding to put my own wishes kind of above what else is going on? And is that a
4: fundamentally
0: selfish choice? No, that's, that,
4: that's a fair argument to put. I mean, you know, and morality is complicated, you yeah, know, the, 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 there aren't many straight lines. No here. doubt. I mean, no in
0: doubt. taking the argument to its logical conclusion, it, it, one might say, you know, I really love this watercolor by Adolf Hitler. And no, you, you can't. Know, no. I'm, I'm going to put that <laughs> on my wall. You know, yeah, Fortunately, <laughs> his watercolors were crap. <laughs> fortunately. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Saying, you
4: know, but, but, um, but, then, anyway, I see, you know, we, we could do this to death. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, it's,
0: it's worth mentioning that we did a podcast some time ago with Mick Brown, who, yes. of course, did this extraordinary interview with Phil, just literally forty-eight hours before he shot Lana Clarkson, That's something right. like that. And so we talked quite a lot with Mick and his wonderful biography of of Phil. But look, we've got four we've got four pieces about Spectre. So just to mention that they sort of span the career. The first one is nineteen sixty four, Norman Jopling meeting him in London, and then Harvey Kubernick talking to him in nineteen seventy-five, and then Joel Selvin Looking back after the murder of of Lana Clarkson for Mojo in twenty oh three. So they're all pieces that kind of together they kinda tell aspects of the Spectre story. I think it's time to move on to another American this week's audio interview, Mark.
4: Yes, this is John Tobler in 1989 interviewing Miles Copeland. Now, Miles Copeland has worn many hats. He was a a manager of his brother's band, The Police. Stuart, of course, been the drummer of them. And he ran his most successful business career was uh, running irs records and uh, he, he talks a mile a minute basically a toddler asks a question and copeland's off he's he's just got this ability to talk 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 he's very interesting about that, that in around 1975 he was ver- on the verge of bankruptcy he had been managing bands like curved air and yes. uh, wishbone ash and so on mm-hmm. and so forth i know pretty pretty Disgusting stuff. I just I can never
1: hear Wishbone Ash without thinking of the Ashbone You Wish tribute <laughs> band.
4: <laughs> Good. It'll always be in my head. So, so, so he's on the verge of going bust. And basically, punk happens and actually kind of rescues him. And he says in this interview, it's quite interesting, he says that basically because he had no money and the bands had no money, they trusted him in a way that they probably wouldn't have trusted. A major label. And he set up this series of labels, Deptford Fund's City Labels.
0: 40 Step Forward. Absolutely.
4: A whole succession of them, and and, and Squeeze's first records. Chelsea's Right to Work. Yeah, the the Cortinas, Wayne County recorded. You know, an extraordinary kind of hodgepodge of stuff. So, let's listen to him talking about his near-bankruptcy and the saviour that was punk Rock.
5: Well, it was a transition, but it just happened at a time that I was personally close to bankruptcy. And the punks, like uh, me, were broke too. They had no money. Nobody would give them money. So they didn't mind if somebody didn't have any money. If you took them seriously... They thought they, they, they wanted to deal with you. Because nobody else would take them seriously. And I was one of the very few in the business that knew the business, that it had some success, that it had bands tour America, that had made record deals, that, you know, could mm. book a marquee could get a band in a marquee club, you know. And the fact that somebody who had been in the business took them seriously uh, was great. This was my attraction to the punk community. The fact that I was broke, you know, they didn't know. <laughs> I we
3: have the
4: right
3: to burn. We have the right to burn.
4: <laughs> I do <laughs> like that. He goes on to talk, I mean, there's quite, there's, there's a lot of real proper music biz talk in this, this interview. Yeah, there's there's a lot I, I listen to business, some of it. Oh, yeah, 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 it's very businessy. Yeah, and it's well, a kind of
1: interesting, it's, I mean, sure, he's a businessman. I mean, it's an interesting perspective on, if you haven't listened to that kind of person talk about music, yeah. it is all about product. Well, yeah. it, it is all about it, it is. numbers and and finding things that will sell and having them before the other
4: record companies. Well, what a strange absence of
2: wishy-washiness in there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes,
4: yes, yes. I yeah. mean, well, one thing I'll say for him is that actually he does qualify as a proper record man, I'd say, in, mm-hmm. in the way that some music businesses and mm-hmm. didn't. There the, is, the, you know, he talks in the interview about why he signed the bands he signed and that, whether it's him or someone else, one of one of his close associates in IRS records, they had to genuinely really love what they were hearing. You know, it wasn't just, a, mm-hmm. that'll be a hit. You know, it was, it was, it, he talks about IRS's relationship, first of all, with their distributors in America, A&M, how he had a very good relationship with Jerry Moss, but in the end, A&M weren't big enough in a curious kind of way to sustain. What, uh, they signed REM, all kinds of, you know, really sort of, Big people, the the I mean, band. somewhat notorious skunkers. figure,
0: isn't he? Really. I mean, I remember kind of, in a sense, back there in the eighties. You know, there was this. There were all these stories about his dad being a top CIA guy, and Miles was was just an aggressive capitalist, probably quite quite right wing, and all. That I think we now know essentially to be true. Part of the beauty of the story is how he sort of accidentally fell into the record business. Um, And so maybe you could just intro the second clip for us, Mark.
4: He talks about how he sort of didn't want to do what his dad did. And so, you know, as a young man, he's casting around for things to do. Let's have a listen to this.
5: I thought I'd follow follow in the footsteps of my father and I'd be involved in American... Overseas uh, interests, or working with American companies in the Middle East, and you know, I mean, I, I was a um, well-bred in international politics, intrigue, business, everything. And I met a pop group in, in, in Lebanon and helped them out uh, oh, just Lebanon. before the Lebanon had sort of embroiled itself in, in fanaticism. I came to London; they came to see me. I said, "Why don't you manage this And it was such a preposterous idea. I just said, "What the hell? Sounds like fun." I can-
4: OK, at the end of this podcast, we'll play the last one, which is about him being a capitalist ogre. And he's actually quite, a, he's quite amusing about it. He knows everyone thinks he's a right-wing, kind of neo-Thatcherite <laughs> money man. Then he did this really kind of ghastly thing, The Night of the Guitar Tour, where he dug out all these awful, creaky old rockers, you know, Wishbone Ash, Randy California. Well, Randy California is pretty great. Robbie Krieger and so on and so forth. And marched them around halls, I believe, certainly in England. I don't know if it went to America.
0: It is bizarre, isn't it? Because it's like having having sort of basically been bankrupted by Curved Air and Wishbone Ash, as it were, <laughs> and then actually making a small fortune via Chelsea and Squeeze and obviously the police who were a, a giant band. He then sort of goes back to sort of the <laughs> world of Wishbone Ash. Uh, I know. And as you said, the night of the... Is it Night of the Long Guitars? Or night, no, no, just, it's not
4: the, of not the, the guitars. just the Night of the Guitar Tour. <laughs> night like of the Long, long Guitars would of of guitar,
0: better
4: name. <laughs> and then the other thing is that he started this instrumental label called IRS No Speak, which actually only lasted about oh, two years. Yeah. I, looked, I looked it up and it bit the dust fairly rapidly. Mm-hmm. And he he was basically trying to cash in on the sort of New Age, but not new age bandwagon the idea that there 's a place for instrumental music.
2: I remember being leaned on at my desk at time out with the no speak label ah. leaned on really quite hard and the per the, the, the press guy at a m was a lovely chap at the time, and I could hear the the terror in his voice as he leaned ever harder <laughs> <laughs> not, not a glorious memory. <laughs> so, I mean, in the audio, I mean,
0: Miles is pretty scathing about about the music press, you know. And he's oh, he's yeah. start, quite early on, Mark, and he sort of tells Toby, you know, I haven't got anywhere to, to promote my product right now, you know. All I need is a new kind of melody maker, you know. And it's all yes. it's all about. I've yeah. nowhere to promote my product. Mm-hmm.
4: For a man who's made so much money, he's remarkably sensitive. About the, the, the treatment, Where he's going to make gets. more money, but that tends to be a common characteristic. <laughs> well, well indeed, money. it's 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 worth listening to. I think it's a pretty interesting interview, you know. And uh, you just got to like just put up with the fact that he basically shouts at you for about an hour. He
0: talks <laughs> incredibly <laughs> fast, doesn't he? Yeah. Fast. It really does. i really one, one of the pieces I added to the library was this, like "Hello Goodbye" with Andy Summers, the, the guitarist in the Police. So, Mojo's "Hello Goodbye" feature was like where the police began or where Andy came into the police and then the night it ended. And it was quite interesting to read that. It just, the way that Sting just abruptly brought the curtain down on the police in, in 1984. They did then reunite for an incredibly lucrative reunion tour. But but it was just interesting to be reminded that the police did just, they kind of said, let's, let's really quit while we're ahead here. And they were huge. Mm. They were the biggest band in the world really for a,
4: for a bit. And we also forget that most of them, well, there's a three-piece, two-thirds of the three-piece had a long and slightly dodgy form in sort of vaguely proggy bands. And the well, Stuart Copeland was in curved air. Well, absolutely. And, and Andy Summers was around in the mid-60s yes. playing on all kinds of bands. You know, I mean, these were not, And they, they, they dressed themselves up as sort of punks. They cut their hair short and dyed it blonde and can kind try of tried to present themselves as being 10 years younger than they actually were. It was extraordinary kind of fraudulent sort of you know, activity, but
0: Miles is so predictably like sort of Muso in his preferences in this interview. You know, it's all about you know for the guy who who, who released Chelsea's right to work, and also claims that Gene October was a sort of un, unofficial A man for IRS. He's he's very sort of like. You know, there's nothing better than a night out where you get to hear guys who can, like, really play. You know, it's like you get a, you have a nice meal. You go <laughs> to the Greek theater and you hear... You know, when you go see Sting, you know, it's great. There's great songs. He looks great. But you also get to hear guys who can really play. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that was
0: spot on. That was exactly very good fantastic so anyway Mars copeland i did find it fascinating and uh, so let's um we i think we're just going to note the uh, departures the great kind of gig in the sky of uh, so last week it was tim Bogart of vanilla fudge and the previously mentioned beck Bogart and a bass player one of the first sort of kind of superstar bass guitarists and also the lovely, because I interviewed him once, Sylvain Sylvain of the New York Dolls, who was just a doll. He was a doll. <laughs> <laughs> and it was sad to see him go. I mean, there is only, what, David Johansson left of that extraordinary That's, that's right. Are you a Dolls yeah. fan, Nicholas? You, you, you
2: may not call me Nicholas.
3: <laughs> you are not
2: my mother. <laughs> <laughs> was I a Dolls fan? Yeah, I was a kind of latter-day Dolls fan. I, I got caught up with the Dolls along with Punk. Certainly not a Dolls fan at the time. I remember them being on the whistle test. and You Mama agreed was... with
4: Bob Harris, didn't no, you? No, no. Nodding you your mean, head Bob.
2: and agreeing. Yes, yes. Bring back I, I, Rick Wakeman. I scratched my head a little bit at the time. Yeah. I wouldn't go any further than that. But I liked the Dolls well enough. I preferred um, the heartbreakers, actually.
0: Okay, we're also saying goodbye to a very, a very important man, Duke Booty, Ed Flatcher, Duke Booty of Grandmaster Fashion and the Furious Five. Well,
4: which he wasn't. He wasn't actually of Grandmaster Fashion and the Furious Five, but he co-wrote well, and the he co-wrote and performed on the message. He was actually, yes. he was kind of one of the in-house guys at Sugar Hill Records. He, he produced a lot of the very early hip hop stuff. Mm. He's more, almost more of a producer. He does rap on that record, but he was more of a producer than anything else. Very interesting guy. Well, so
0: we're featuring an interview that Caroline Sullivan did in 2013, How We Made the Message, and she talks to Jiggs Chase and Ed Fletcher about the genesis of, of this epochal recording. And it, it starts off with Jiggs Chase popping in to see Ed in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And Ed starts kind of just saying i don't know whether you could say he's rapping but don't push me i'm close to the edge i'm trying not to lose my head that was the germ of yeah. the seedbed in a sense of so much as well socially conscious hip-hop absolutely
4: mm. absolutely
0: i mean it's a dated record now yeah but i still think it packs it's quite a punch oh that's amazing yeah,
1: i think so it is pretty amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, it's good yeah. stuff.
0: So Duke Booty sadly died last week, and so we're and we're also just featuring a piece that Angus Beatty wrote about Sugar Hill and Sylvia Robinson as the as the sort of hub, the New Jersey hub of East Coast hip hop. So don't
5: push me 'cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. Say what? It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes,
0: it makes me And at this point, Mark... Yeah, yeah. We, we will hear about some of the highlights.
4: Um, of oh, this week and last week, are, yeah. our fortnightly highlights. Last week, Peter Jones beat instrumental interviewed Herb Albert in 1966. And Herb Albert's very... He's very tetchy about all these guitar bands and making all the money all of a sudden because he's a kind of brass guy. And he says, playing guitar is just one thing, coordination of two hands. You don't have to worry about your lungs, you know. So <laughs> that makes the horn players inherently superior to guitar players. Of course. Very interesting piece. This is March 77th. It's one of Mary Harron's earliest pieces we have in the library. And it's, she's explaining British punk to the New Yorkers via her a large article in the Village Voice. And she says, these reports got the reality of CBGBs all wrong. That is that the British punk bands were obsessed with CBGBs. But Distortion Works wonders. The New York scene was never as dynamic or as committed a movement as the English fans made it out to be. It was a dream they imitated, not the reality. And in the process, they brought that dream to furious life. So uh, I think it's a really interesting and very good point that, that the British punks accidentally almost by misunderstanding Mm -hmm. what american punk was created something which was really entirely different we love mary we did
0: did a great podcast uh, episode Mm -hmm. with with mary harron and she was sort of uniquely placed in terms that she did spend time here and she did spend time in in new york of course so she was she was able to talk with some authority in fact almost unique authority of of the differences between the two scenes.
4: Absolutely. 1979, Ronnie Gurr, Record Mirror, interviewing Chris Stein from Blondie. He's this usual prickly thing. And he says, we're always asked by newspapers, how come everything's focuses on Debbie? Then they put a picture of her on the cover, which is you know, a fair point. He says every performer uses his or her sexuality to some extent. Rock and roll is a sensuous art level. It's synonymous with sex. At least a decade ahead, 1991, Diane Stillman writing about heavy metal for the New York Times. It's a really great piece. She's basically kind of summing up the whole L.A. metal scene of the early 90s. And she starts by writing, quote, I'm in my mid-30s, I'm a professional, I pay my taxes, I'm a voter, I love heavy metal and will until I die. So says Torn Mastry, host of the video metal magazine Metalhead. Ms. Mastry built her reputation as the leather nun at KNAC, the Los Angeles heavy metal radio station that features a traffic reporter named Headbanging Barb car insurance ads for dudes with questionable driving records, and a turbocharged playlist that will make your
0: ears bleed. It's a really good... I love that. I wouldn't You like to make your reputation as the leather nun.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It's absolutely fantastic. This week, this is great, we've got an uncredited review of Blonde on Blonde for Beat Instrumental September 66. The opening line is, this is the seventh CBS LP from Mister Dylan, and it is in fact two <laughs> albums in one. Because two albums in one, it's a double album, which oh, were that's very superb, which were very rare in those days. Double albums mm-hmm. weren't well, yeah, they? They
1: yeah. don't
0: write them like that anymore. No, Mister Dylan, <laughs> we <Well, you're laughs> <messing with laughs> Silver go to lunch. You like to to write like. <laughs>
4: Uh, The next one's a nod to our previous guest, our guest in our last podcast, John Simon. Uh, Dan Nuger reviewing a show that he did at Max's Kansas City, again for The Village Voice. This is in December 72. Though I can't imagine him ever having to hawk his songs on street corners, his total unpretentiousness made the half-filled club into a comfortably cosy living room full of friends. At the beginning of his set, he laid a copy of Journey, that was his current album, atop the piano for whoever has the swiftest fingers. And yes, an hour and a half later, as Simon Mingleton shook hands with the appreciative audience, it was still there. <laughs> I mentioned in an email to John, I'd found this. And he remembered it almost word for word, partly because <laughs> he's had very few reviews. Oh, that's probably true. And he thought it was a bad review, and it's really not. But right. he, he really remembered that thing about no one taking the record.
0: That's mm. so funny. We didn't actually talk with John about his own solo records, which are not really not devoid of merit. And I think we talked about Muscle Shoals. I have a feeling that on that journey album. He did. He did he actually did some of that down at Muscle Shoals that, Sound. That, that, so that, interesting. That, that, it's great that, to have him yeah. um, <laughs> on the site as an artist. Absolutely.
4: Uh nineteen seventy three rock scene, Vicky Wickham interviewing the very great Al Green. Oh. He says if you want me to be down to Earth, then we can be as soulful as can be. I know all about that. I range from Mars to 125th Street,
0: you see. <laughs> <laughs> well, we nearly, we did nearly pick one of your Al Green pieces. I don't know how many you've written, but certainly the one we've got on RBP. Two or three, two or three. Yeah, I mean, we haven't got time to talk about Al Green, but I did want to include it because <laughs> it's a wonderful piece, and and he he sort of really answers to your kind of aesthetic as someone who's within a tradition. But but my God, did he sort of stretch yeah. the parameters of that yeah. tradition? Absolutely,
2: and by driving inwards, finding driving it about, inwards, yeah, oh, absolute genius, Al Green.
4: He is a genius. Yeah, no, we, yeah. we 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 all, I think, we can absolutely say we all adore him.
2: And, and we're not misapplying the words, Jasper. Here, no, no. I, I was just <laughs>
4: thinking that. I was yeah. thinking well, that. he was
0: on the receiving end rather than the. I mean, he was the guy who had yeah. boiling grits poured over his back. Yeah. So that's so, that, that,
4: that's right. Yeah. Right. Well. Jumping forward to 1995, I won't quote from it, but it's a very interesting article. Why are records too long? By Roy Traken for Musician, November ninety-five. and it's a really it's it's a good article making a very very good point that with very few exceptions, most records these days because they have to fill a CD around 50, 60 minutes long, almost minimum, and they're far too long. Yeah, that actually maybe the ideal length of an album is, is 40 minutes, around mm-hmm. 40 minutes. It's a, it's, a, it's a good point. Lastly, this is lovely. I mean, just because he comes over so nice. This is the wonderful invisible jukebox thing in The Wire. And this is Mike Barnes interviewing Harold Budd, who we've spoken
0: about before on this podcast. Who died, what, about two, three weeks ago? That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. And
4: he just comes over delightful. He's very funny. He's like, the first time I heard Sonny Murray was on the soundtrack to the Michael Snow film, New York Eye and Ear Control, and it just rolled my socks down. I love that expression. <laughs> it rolled my socks down. It rolled. That's fabulous. That's great. <laughs> and then later on, he's played. I love what, that. Obviously, what he's played. He says, wow, this must be Bob Wills. Man, oh, man, I didn't expect you to hear this in London. Oh, God, this is lovely. I just, <laughs> I, I, I just actually <laughs> adored, adored that. Then later on, he's talking about how he used to have a Fender Rhodes piano, but kind of lost it. He says, with a breakup of marriage and eventual divorce, I lost a lot of things. Calvin coats." the Rhodes Piano. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then the last one, which is actually a very really good point, for, for this, particularly for those of us who are very keen on jazz, he says, can you imagine what it must be like to be a tenor player and continually have to confront this massive wall of Coltrane? You're yeah. always the underdog. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, actually a very good point. I think that whilst I think... I. Jasper, you like, you admire Coltrane. Um, I mean, sure, but we've talked before about how it is, you know, so many
1: tenor saxophonists yeah. still go out to sound like Coltrane, and it's yeah. very. there is this looming shadow of Coltrane. I, I, you posted that on Facebook, I think, and I saw it and I thought, yeah, that's, that's still, you know, just so, so, so much the case. There's a way that you can actually
2: demonstrate the Coltrane problem by listening to a record. If you go and find Miles Davis's Someday My Prince Will Come, The official Miles Davis tenor player that at that moment was Hank Mobley, but Coltrane turned up to play on a couple of numbers, and they they share the stand on one number. Um, I can't remember. I think it's the title track, and Coltrane completely splatters Mobley to the to the extent where Mobley can hardly
0: play. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's worth mentioning that chapter eight of your wonderful book, Voices, is, is about saxophonists. Uh, well, mm-hmm. not, not just saxophonists, as I'm looking at it now. So it's called So What? And it says it's Miles Davis, John Coltrane and Hank Mobley with Jackie McLean, Booker Irvin and John Sermon. <laughs> so you, you treat them as kind of voices, which is, oh, absolutely. Which is really interesting. They're voices.
4: They are voices. I'm very ambivalent. I mean, some John Coltrane stuff I love. Actually, curious enough, the stuff where he's not the leader of the band, where he's a sideman, particularly early in his career. Ruby, my dear, twinkle, twinkle, with felonious mm, monk. Mm, mm. Uh, the stuff he did with Miles Davis. No, there's no doubt he was a great saxophonist. You know, I, mean, I, I, he, I find that. Was, but... I find that roaring sheets of sound stuff in the sort of mid '60s just really hard to listen to. Do you mean post post Love Supreme, including Love Supreme,
2: including Love Supreme? Yes. Wow. Okay. Because okay. Love Supreme's my outer edge. I don't go much further than that. But I still think right. he's no. he's far enough inside to be coherent. ascension and all that. No, stuff. I can't play <laughs> with ascension. <laughs> <laughs> Not even <laughs> on Sundays. Nick, yeah. A man who couldn't cope
0: with the ascension, <laughs> <laughs> despite his church rearing.
4: Yes. It, it, it's a very interesting thing because I think he has had a terrible influence on so many yeah, tenor players. I think so. I agree. I mean, I, I love you know, it when I hear a tenor player who's clearly heard Coleman Hawkins or Ben Webster rather or Sonny than Sonny Rollins. Sonny Rollins, indeed. You know. I mean, yeah. It's it's for me
1: as a as a tenor player. Uh, <laughs> I do. Consciously try and seek out other inspirations than Coltrane because it's such a dominant sound that you don't you don't really want to be part of. Uh, I think all
2: all tenor players should go back to Lester Young.
4: Oh sure, Lester Young, and and then
2: find themselves out of Lester Young.
4: Yeah, or you go back to Coleman Hawkins. He's the alternative, but I like Lester Young or Ben Webster. (laughs) I love Ben Ben Webster. Webster. We I could love, be here a while. I just love it. <laughs> 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 On that note, I'll pass
0: over to, to play you guys. We're playing tenor player yes. top trunks yes.
4: here. Go <laughs> to watch
0: my page and find the link to the sub-podcast episode <laughs> <laughs> devoted to tenor saxophonist. <laughs>
4: Bardi
0: Jasper, what have you guys got? I'm going to mention just two things very quickly because I know we're running out of time. One of them is an interview with Midlakes, Tim Smith by Pete Perfides from 2010 and Times. I only mention it because I really did love, there aren't many albums by young men or young male groups that I've really liked over the last, I suppose, 15 years, but The Trials of Van Occupanther by Midlake was definitely one of them. So it was interesting to read this interview. God knows really what's happened to them since, but Tim Smith left the group. Anyway, I think it's a fantastic record. It's a great, it's a great piece by Pete. And the other thing was because we've got our next guest is another Nick. It's, it's, it's a, we're in we're in kind of Nick month. We've got Nick Kent coming in, actually at the beginning of February. Have so you? I wanted uh. to mention, yeah, he will be the next guest. He has a new novel out. Mm. And he wrote this piece, a sort of tribute to his friend Mark Zamati, a sort of Parisian legend of sort of druggy punk rock who formed Sky Dog Records and had a great record shop in Paris and signed the flaming groovies, etc. And was a, a legendary character who who died recently, and it's a it's a very heartfelt tribute from Nick about Marcus' inspiration and sort of you know fellow drug casualty. Uh, so I wanted to mention that, and then and then hand over to Mister Mears and Bowie.
1: Well, the first thing I wanted to mention was we've sort of alluded to football already in this podcast, but because I, I read Nick, your it's a terrifically moving account of going back to see Arsenal for the first time after your hearing loss.
2: That foolishness, yeah.
1: And it was very moving, but then I just thought, nothing to do with being moving at all, but to do with the football side of it, I thought I'd add this re- uh, interview with Ant and Deck, of all people, who recorded <laughs> the official England World Cup song in 2002. From the and it's, it's ridiculous.
0: Just, <laughs> it's, a very,
1: it's a very, very ridiculous thing.
4: John Coltrane to, Ant, to, and to and and Ant and Deck. <laughs> Ant and yeah, Deck, yeah.
1: These, <laughs> the, these are the right, contrasts. Just, but, these are the contrasts that, that I live for. <laughs> but so they they recorded this ridiculous World Cup song in two thousand two, the World Cup at which Sven Goran Eriksson was coaching. The
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but they're they they're big Newcastle fans, Anton Deck. Mm. And they just felt like they couldn't they they'd have been kicking themselves the rest of their lives had they not recorded this if you go back and listen to it, well, tells you all you need to know really it's just a ridiculous piece of world cup music but there was a sort of fashion for it the spice girls did the world cup record the 1998 world cup and that caused ant to say there's that thing says ant you could be the spice girls or you could be skinner and Badil. and that's not up to us that's up to everybody
4: else
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure nick will be going back to listen to this on Spotify <laughs> directly this episode is oh, so over <laughs>
1: I will just mention as well a review of a film about Albert Ayler. John Lewis reviews it for the BFI's Sight and Sound magazine, It's our first piece from that magazine. And it's, it's a review of, of what sounds like a very interesting documentary, which I'm intending to go and watch, which I haven't seen. So, yeah, that just is of interest.
0: Ayler or Isla? I think it's Isla. Didn't R- Isla. Richard Williams correct us? I mispronounced <laughs> it, of course, not being a jazz buff. But when Richard came on the show... I said Albert oh, Ayler. There was obviously a piece we were adding, and he and he sort of gently tapped me on the on on the arm. I think it's Ayla. <laughs> and, it, and I'm sure sorry. you can confirm that, Nick.
1: Definitely Isla. Yeah. Did I say Ayla? No, you said Ayla. I said Ayla.
4: <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs>
1: Let's call the whole thing off.
0: <laughs> Let's bring the episode to a
4: conclusion. <laughs>
1: yeah. Anyway, Albert Ayler. There's that. Um, and then the the, fin- the final thing. Just <laughs> <laughs> the final thing I wanted to mention is a is a funny piece about when Eurovision came to the town of the Irish town of Mill Street in 1993, and Tim Cooper was sent to report on it. And it's just very, very funny. Each shop and pub in Mill Street got to pick a country that they would sort of do window dressing for and welcome this Eurovision delegation. And it's just a nice report and, and set of interviews with, with various people in Mill Street that's just of cute historical interest. Does the piece you.
0: explain why Eurovision went to Mill Street, a town nobody had heard of or still has heard of?
1: Some businessmen, I think, built some dome, some
4: sports <laughs> dome near it that was then used
1: A and, and state of pleasure just,
0: dome decree
4: the, the Irish <laughs> were rather prone in those days to these sort of grandiloquent gestures I remember they built an airport just to welcome Pope John Paul II. They actually mm. built in the middle of nowhere this kind of international size airport. It was, they're, they're, and they won
0: the Eurovision. Didn't didn't was that? Am I Have I got this completely wrong? They so always dammit. won the Eurovision. They always they won. won. Yeah. They, they did. <laughs> they still they did win. win every year. Mm. They did win the Eurovision
1: that year, and the UK came second behind Neve Cavanaugh. That's even more shocking, really. We normally finished bottom. Sonia, Sonia came me. second. Null fois.
0: Nil point.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yes. yeah. And now our VEU will be even lower, and and it's hundred and seventieth place, UK. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and on that very and happen. on
0: that pathetic note, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been fun.
0: Oh, great! Oh, it's uh, a
4: huge pleasure having you. It's been great fun. Go find Nick's
0: books and find his writing on Rock's Back Pages and elsewhere.
4: As I was saying, Barney to Nick before we start the podcast is that last time I saw Nick was probably the last social event mm. I went to before lockdown, which is ex-stump bass player Kev Hopper's painting exhibition at Whitstable. Now, then, mm. literally within about a week or two of that,
0: the, 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 the shutters came down. Oh, what a great last event to, to yeah, be absolutely. present at. Um, well, that, that, that's us, and hopefully soon we'll be able to go back to Whitstable. Yes. So that's... That's it. We are going to go out, Mark, with a last blast yeah. of Mystic of Miles Copeland III.
4: Yes, Miles Copeland, capitalist ogre. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, we'll be back with Nick Kent in two weeks. Thanks so much again, Mr. Coleman. Oh, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Bye, everyone.
4: Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>
5: The press don't want to like somebody that way. I think it's just a, it's just an automatic. The guy's a capitalist. Oh, we think capitalism is bad because they don't understand the meaning of the word. Therefore, he, he's he's somebody to be to heap abuse on. You know, I mean, what, a journalist writing a nice article about me, people would wonder what happened. You know, they, they they talk to him and think I bribed him or something. You know, I mean, you can't say anything nice about me. It's just not right in America, though. I, I you know, people always say nice things. You know.
1: That was Miles Copeland in conversation with John Tobler in 1989, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to a special guest Nick Coleman. Find The Train in the Night and Voices, How a Great Singer Can Change Your Life at any good bookseller. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.
3: <laughs> back.